Amen. Well, good morning. All right, we're going to be in 1 Timothy. If you have a Bible or there's one on the seats in front of you, and in fact, if you grab one from the seats in front of you, we're going to start on page 992. For the rest of you, 1 Timothy, we're going to study 5 today, but I want to start in chapter 3. And I want to go back. I want to catch one comment in 3, one comment in 4 to kind of lean into what we're talking about today. Um, Last week, we talked about we, Generations Church, equipping ourselves to be more like what we see the Bible calling us as a body of Christ. And, and I'll say this, today, obviously, an eclectic mix of people, different mix, it's a, uh, as we have guests today, there's two baptisms, uh, both oddly, just because God has a sense of humor, both baptisms are guys that are friends, but came to faith separately, riding different clubs, so we got a lot of guests today, which tells me two things. One, for all the people that stayed home because it's raining, let me just comment that everybody owns a Jeep with a top off or rides a Harley figured out how to get here, right? So mock your friends. No, all right, so anyhow, all right. If you're online and that's you, um, we're talking to you. All right, so the other thing is, where would you rather have these guys be? In church or out there on the streets, right? Good thing we keep an eye on them, especially the guys we're baptizing today. All right, so we're excited about that. No, we love this, and we love the diverse nature of God's family, right? And that is the point today, that when we gather together, we become a body, a family, right? Clubs talk about a brotherhood, right? We talk about a family. They're going to use the word brothers in here that you were born into a biological family that has great value, that God honors that, blesses that, that your primary relationships exist in that biological family. But your second relationship is the church family. If you're a follower of Jesus, this becomes number two, right? This is that relationship. I like to tell people, listen, you and your biological family may or may not all be Christians, you may or may not spend forever with them, but for here, better get used to it. We're together forever, right? With any family like that, there's responsibilities. And with any family like that, with any brotherhood, there's rules, right? There are things you are called to do and things that you are not called to do. And that's what we're looking at today. And we, last week, we talked about how do we become equipped, prepared to handle some of those things, and we talked about the centrality of Scripture and the church. So I want to back up. So again, well, let me give you the main idea. So inside the church family, we'll put this on the screen, Paul reveals three active struggles inside the Ephesian church where he's writing to Timothy, showing us how biblical care and discipline in the church works to restore people to Jesus. The idea of discipline is always to restore people. The idea of discipline in the home with our children is to restore them to a right place, right? Discipline is never just punitive, that the goal of discipline is always restoration, is always healing, redeeming, restoring to a right place. So I want to back up to 1 Timothy 3, looking at verse 14 and 15. This is Paul's thesis statement for the whole book. And he says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. So Paul writing to Timothy, as Timothy pastors the church in Ephesus, he says, I'm writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. 
So there's behavior that's appropriate inside the household of God, and this doesn't mean when you're present, it means when you become a part of the household of God. Right? I'll just keep using this. You're going to wear a specific cut. You're going to wear a different, you're going to claim a particular team or brotherhood. There's rules. And you represent that 24 7, not just when you're sitting here. Right? Does that make sense? And this is true of everything. You coach baseball, baseball teams got rules. Right? I don't care if you're part of chess club, whatever it is, right? You represent something. You represent your family. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you represent your church. That's the idea. He says, I'm writing this so that you know how you're to behave as the household of God. You see, the gospel doesn't just forgive us and promise us something about eternity. It calls us to something today. That God loved you enough to come and provide a way back to him. That the, the separation that you and I have because of our sin, our choices, right? And we don't say their sin. Who cares about their sin? My sin, your sin. Our decisions, even knowing better, as followers of Jesus, knowing better, still choosing to do the wrong thing, that the only way back to God is through Jesus. That God provides a way back to cover the gap between a holy God and a sinful world. And so Jesus enters into our story, becomes human, becomes flesh, and he lives the life that you and I are called to live, but fail and choose to fail. And he does it perfectly, always bringing glory to God. And then he dies a death in our place, taking our penalty, so that one day he will stand before the ultimate judge in God and say, no, they're mine. They're mine. I paid their penalty. And was buried to cover our sin. Then he rose again on the third day, right? Then he rose again back to life. We don't worship a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus. We worship a living God. And that that new life, that resurrection, is what gives us new life. We're not forgiven versions of the broken, jacked up people we were. We're new. We're made new. The very promise of baptism that we're looking at today, the first gospel preached in the church after the ascension of Jesus, the people hearing it say, listen, what must I do to be saved? Like, we're hearing this. This is new and we want it. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That you will receive power to live for Jesus. What Paul has been telling us is when that takes place, you are baptized into a family. You are made the family of God. You become brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when he says, listen, I'm writing so that you know how to behave in the household of God, saying, listen, inside your faith, now as a follower of Jesus, I'm writing so you know how to behave that way. In 1 John 3, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We should put that on the screen. 1, Timothy, 1 John 3, sorry. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Father, that's the primary name or title that we give God, right? Father. Because the reality is when you become a follower of Jesus, you're in the family of God. That we should be called children of God. That you should have the privilege of being called children of God. When you join a team, a club, a family, when you, do it, when you become a part of something, it should be an honor that you're a part of that. You should believe that if you're pursuing that. And to be a part of the family of God should be your greatest honor. 
And so we should learn how to behave as the family of God. Yes, it's about what we believe, but belief changes behavior. And we don't have behavior problems, we have belief problems. Because if you change your belief, you will live differently. So 1 Timothy 4, scroll or turn a page or just skim forward a few verses. He says, verse 6, 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He says, listen, when problems arise inside the family of God, I want you to put it before the family of God. Now again, this isn't some generic version of, hey, we're all sons and daughters of God, like globally, past, present, and future. He's talking about the local body, the church, that you belong to a local family. It's like your family's your family, my family's my family, we have different addresses. Local bodies, the church, are families with different addresses. Yes, we're related, and we have some weird cousins out there, but, but we're family here. That baptism today isn't just a symbol of faith, you're being baptized into a family here. We're calling you brother and sister, in this case, brothers. And that you to call us that. That we understand that, that we're under God, that we need to understand how we behave in the family of God. And when someone does not behave correctly in the family of God, you bring it before the family of God. You see that you bring it before the church. And I just said that to you last week. That's not something I've been good at. We've handled it at a leadership level, but we haven't been always handling it well with the family. And I said it stops last week, right? That you, if you're going to, if we're going to call you family, then you deserve to know some things. Now, if you deserve to know some things, that means you're responsible for some things. That's what we look at today. All right? So I'm going to read. So now we can go to 1 Timothy 5, but I'm going to put one verse on the screen beforehand, and this is kind of the key for today. So Matthew 18, you hear this a lot? Hey, have you... You know, have you walked through Matthew 18? A lot of Christians will say that. Maybe you kind of nod your head, but you don't know what that means. Here's what it is. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We'll call that step one. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he listens, good job, right? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, if one-on-one doesn't work, then you grab a buddy or two. And you go to them and say, hey, listen, here's the issue so that they may establish that with you. All right, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. You see that? You, the local church. We don't put it on the internet for the church on the other side of the planet, local church, right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, listen. Let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remove him from the membership of the church then. That doesn't mean they can't attend that means they no longer belong to the family, right? There are people in here that we would say belong to the family. And then, we, like we said earlier, we have guests. Glad you're here if you're a guest, right? There's a distinction, though. When you're a guest in my home, you clearly are not my wife. There's a distinction. <laughs> you act a fool, right? We expect you to be a family. And when you're a family, you have responsibilities as a family. And then when you have a problem, here's how you deal with it. Now, I just put Matthew 18 up there, and everybody talks about it. Nobody does it, right? Like almost no one. I was going to stop and say, well, maybe, no, nobody really does it. 
You know how many times I hear about a problem with me from someone who doesn't have a problem with me? Thank you. Yes. More than I should. Do you know how often you hear about somebody else talking about you who doesn't come to you? So don't be those people. Right? That's like brainless. Like, just don't be those people. He says, go to somebody. Talk to somebody. If that doesn't work, bring another person or two. Bring a leader from the church. Bring an elder. Bring someone who can go and have this conversation. See, one or two things are going to happen. When you show up, i got a problem with Scott. I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to Scott. And if it doesn't work, if he says, hey, listen, I don't agree with your problem. I'm like, I don't like that shirt. He's like, I don't think that's sin. I think it's bad. All right? <laughs> then i got to get somebody else who agrees. I don't mean I go from person to person to person to figure out who agrees with me. I go to an elder or my community group leader, and we go, and either my elder or community group leader is going to say, I don't think that shirt is sin. It's ugly as sin, but it's not sin. <laughs> All right, sorry, dude. All right. I love you, bro. All right, so he's going to say that's not sin, or he's going to say that is sin. Now, the, the ball's in his, well, on the first, it's not sin. It's ball's in my court. It is sin. Ball's in your court. That doesn't work. If you won't listen to a group of leaders from the church, then it goes to the whole church. That's where we've dropped the ball. And this is what I said yesterday. So in our silence, trying to not gossip and be the person who talks about somebody, people have left or have not been hired or whatever the cases have been over the last year, and they feel free to talk about everything. But in the absence of saying something, what happens is you get confusing information. Because we haven't done this. We haven't brought it to the church. So that stops last week, right? That means you now have a responsibility. So let's lean into that. So church discipline. We'll put this last note on the screen. Not last. This next note on the screen. Jesus offers four steps of discipline to be taken. One-on-one with other leaders with the full church and possible exclusion from church membership. Okay? Remove the church membership doesn't mean you can't come in the room. Now, if you, come in, if you bring problems every time you come in the room, you can't come in the room. That's the deal. But that's different. 1 Timothy 5, here's the pastor we're going to work through, starting in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers and older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. He says behavior, right? Treat them in the family, like family. Like show some respect to the people that are older. Show some love to the people that are maybe younger or your same age, right? And again, there's a distinction between a public rebuke and a private rebuke. You begin with a private conversation. First two steps, one-on-one, private. You go to a leader, if they agree you're right and you go to them, that's private. It goes public after that. Right, but there's that, let's do this in love. Remember, the goal of discipline or the goal of the conversation is always restoration. I don't need to go to you to be right. I need to go to you to help restore you. If I love you, I will not talk about you. I will talk to you. If there is discipline to be had, it's because we love you. We want to restore you to wholeness in Christ, in the family. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and make, some re- and, and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
So here's the first group, and, the, and kind of the main idea. It says Paul writes dealing with three issues in the Ephesian church. Well, it's three groups of people. The first one is widows. Widows have kind of a different connotation in this culture. Now, in Ephesus, it wasn't quite Jewish culture. It was more Roman culture or Greek culture in Ephesus. And so women had a little more rights than they did in, like, Old Testament. But it wasn't like today. They couldn't own businesses and houses. It wasn't the same. And so when we see widows, what we're looking at is women who are probably struggling financially. And in this case, what he's saying is, listen, if they've lost their husband and they don't have any family, meaning sons or daughters that are adults or maybe parents or in-laws or whatever, if they don't have that, then the church should be caring for them. But if they do have that, they should lean into their family. Notice it uses the word household, right? Show godliness to their own household. See, Paul, all throughout this book, is teaching us what the family of God should look like by what the family looks like. And sometimes we need to reverse that. Hey, how do I work within my family? Well, we should be able to learn that here too, right? So there's these two uses of household. We'll call it biological and spiritual. And he's saying, listen, here's the two things, right? Verse 5, so she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. That supplications is another way of saying prayers. It's a kind of prayer. Now, there was a different category of widows in the early church that you could be, uh, and, and, and I want to just kind of give that to you. Some widows, especially older widows, would devote themselves to the church. Now, don't quite think like monastic or like a nun, right? But kind of like that. Like they would devote themselves to that life. They would give themselves. It's like, hey, I had a good run. I had a good husband. I had a good family. I just want to give myself to this family, my spiritual family, for the rest of my life, right? I want to devote myself to that, right? They weren't taking vows of abstinence and poverty like you might think of modern-day monastic living, but they lived kind of that ascetic life where they would go and devote themselves to praying for the church and being a part and serving within the church, kind of like, like deacons, just those lead servants and prayers, and he says, now, some will do that, right? In that case, the church would take on all their care and needs. But listen, so before someone makes that decision, here's what Paul says. Verse 6, but she, meaning a widow, who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. Now, it's kind of a harsh thing to hear or to say, especially in our culture today, because basically Paul is proclaiming her, not whoever, this theoretic widow. He's talking about someone who is younger, who is not devoting himself to the church, who has the ability to be a part of a family, who is not, is not living or behaving like a family member of God. You can figure that out, right? And he says, listen, by all external, what we can see, I don't see a believer in them, right? This is where we get weird nowadays, right? Judging people by their faith or actions, right? Now, you hear all the time, like, don't judge me, which came out of friends, not the Bible, but that's beside the point, right? <laughs> Never base your life on sitcom theology, right? So we're actually told to judge, right? Now, there's three different ways you can use the words judge. The guy with the robe and the gavel, right, who was never my friend in the past, but there's that, the office of judge, the role, the person, right? And then there's the judge, like we make judgments all day long, right? 
I either like his shirt or don't and make fun of it. I don't know. Whatever, whatever judgment, that, like the word discern. We choose right from wrong all day long, right? We judge what is right. We judge what is wrong. We should do that more in ourselves, which is what most of the New Testament speaks of, is judging yourself by the same measurement that you want to turn around and judge somebody else. Like, hey, you're going to pick on Scott's shirt. Bro, your shirt and all that, right? Like, okay, so judging yourself more harshly than others, right? Like, you can hear Jesus' words. Like, take the plank out of your eye before you go digging for the speck in someone else's, right? So there's that. And then there's eternal judge. So there's the person, the office of judge. Then there's the judgments, discernings that we do all day long, every day, and are actually called to do, but we, we're given how to do it and how to judge ourselves first. That's why we don't talk about the sins out there. We talk about the sins in here. Because we got plenty. When we run out of these, we'd gladly embrace the rest, right? And then there's the eternal judgment. God alone can do that. But God gives us his word to show, hey, here's what it looks like to be in the family of God. And here's what it looks like when someone says they're in the family of God, but it doesn't look that way. And that you can look and you can see by the life that is being lived, whether or not they fit what Jesus is calling us to live like. And when someone professes to be in the family of God, but does not live like the family of God, just like any other organization, there are rules. And it is the responsibility of the local church to then pursue that conversation. How can I tell you I'm your pastor and I love you if I'm going to let you do damaging things to your faith in your life? If I see you doing something damaging to your spouse or to your kids, I love you enough to tell you. If I see you doing da something damaging to your faith, I'm going to tell you. Otherwise, I can't look you in the eyes and say I love you, which I tend to do, because I do. And your elders love you. And so we engage those conversations. But where we have stopped short is including when people don't hear it, those next steps. I've done lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations, but I haven't brought in elders. We haven't brought something to the church. And we need to, because that's what God says clearly. So our model, uh, modern struggle with don't judge me isn't appropriate. And I'll just give you a writing of Paul's to another church, a church in Corinth. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders, right? People outside. He said, is, not the, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Like, get rid of the person who's toxic inside, who isn't a follower of Jesus, who's, calling, uh, who's causing the problems. Remove them. You are to judge the people in here. You wear that same cut that they're wearing or the same cut they're wearing, or you join a team they're on. You judge the people within. And you say what's right and what's wrong. And when someone gets out of line, you, you have a platform for that. The church isn't different. Right? Our, our, our platform our, our, is the church, is the membership, is the body. As we lean into a more formalized version of membership, it's those who have made that mutual commitment with the church. We've said, hey, listen, I want to be your brother and you want to be my brother. Okay, we're, okay, we're in the family. We belong. Well, then we have this relationship that we both committed to something and that we hold ourselves to that. Verse 70 says, command these things as well, so that they, 
may be without reproach. The they equals the, the brothers and sisters, the body of the church, the membership, those who belong. You see, if you are not a member of Generations Church, right, if you're not a formal, if you've not been a part of that, where we mutually commit to each other, then I can't hold you to the same standards because you didn't agree to that. You're like, hey, who asked you, right? But if we did, then we have an agreement. And we both have this and we look at it and say, well, here's what we agreed to and here's what's going on, right? And here's how we handle this. So I'm gonna put this up, a healthy church. Paul teaches us things that feel awkward to the church culture today, but necessary. Our heart is that Generations Church would be a healthy and biblical church. Right? We can ignore those conversations, but that hasn't helped anything. We can go one-on-one, but then it's my ideas versus your ideas. And you're like, well, of course you can show it to me in the Bible. You know more about the Bible than I do. One, learn the Bible. Two, okay, let's include somebody else. Let's have that conversation. And if it continues, then let's talk about it with the church, with those who have covenanted together as the church, the family. Not the guests, not the outsiders, not those who attend, but the family. Right? There are times, I'm sure, when you gather all in your living room, you've got to have a hard family conversation. Sometimes we're going to be like that. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an un- unbeliever. It's a strong statement, but stay with me. Saying, listen, if widows can't find help... Now, now bear in mind, I, I think back, um, it was roughly three years ago, it was, just, it was just under three years ago, we had a young family lose a, lose a husband, right? L- uh, lose a guy, leaving a widow and three daughters and, and other family in the church, a brother and a sister-in-law in the church. That doesn't mean don't care for them. Of course you're there for them in that moment, right? Of course you respond to that. But then, is that a permanent thing? Right, in that case, it's a younger family. It's not the same. But if it's a 90-year-old woman, yeah, of course you respond differently, right? And if a family won't come around family, then the people that won't do that, they're at fault too. There's another conversation to have. You can go over there and say, hey, listen, you've got somebody in need. Why are you not responding to it? Why should the church have to when you could do this? Not that we don't want to, but we should limit our care to those who need it. And the church should be responsible for theirs, who are their family, right? And he says, listen, then he's worse than a, you know, someone who's denied the faith, worse than an unbeliever, right? Again, Paul gets that place where Jesus does in Matthew 18. If they don't listen, treat them like an outsider, right? Then they've denied their belonging to the family. If they won't listen to you, if they won't listen to a few of you, if they won't listen to the whole church, they're not family, We're not saying they're not believers, like they're not going to heaven. We're just saying we can't for sure say they are believers, right? We don't know, but they're not family because they don't want to be family. Family figures it out with family, right? We walk through that. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. By the way, these are parameters for Ephesus 2,000 years ago not a hard line today, right? He's writing to their setting. I wouldn't look at somebody who's 58 and in need of care and stop. Nope, 60, got to be 60, right? Different setting where they couldn't own the same things they do today. Bear with me. Some things are universally true, right? 
You don't care for your own biological family. There's an issue there. That's true. He's now saying, listen, in your circumstance, here's some guidelines, right? I don't think he's writing it as a hard line, like, nope, 59 doesn't count, right? Okay. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, that's a hospitality thing, has cared for the afflicted, that's a community thing, right? Has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. He's talking about, listen, when, when you bring on these widows that are going to be kind of, again, not nuns, but think like that, like devoted to church ministry all the time and cared for by the church, right? Well, then younger widows probably aren't going to be that for long. So embrace that. Teach them how to live and, and care for them while they need, but let them go live a life, right? Let them move on, get married again, do whatever. And again, some of these requirements earlier, like husband of one, wife of one husband, good mom, those are assumptions like if she's a Christian, yeah, she should have treated her marriage like a Christian marriage, right? She should have raised her kids in the faith. Now, she came to faith later. Obviously, you've got a way through that with each person, but he's giving a template by which it should look like, right? It was never designed that we would have multiple spouses, that we would have one person for a lifetime. Granted, a lot of us broke that before we knew better, right? Some even after, but you get the idea. That he's saying, listen, this is what it should look like. And it should be older women, women that are not gonna go out and get married again. Women that are not going to get caught up in that, that their lives could be best used here, best served here. So faithful widows, and in a sense, this isn't a critique of younger widows, it's a protection of younger widows. Like, hey, don't make this step. I don't think you're ready for this step. I think you're grieving, and you're going to heal eventually, and you're going to want to take other steps. So let's just care for you now, not make some kind of commitment you won't be able to keep later. It's more care. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry and bear children, marry, marry, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion to slander them. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so it may care for those who are truly widows. Truly widows doesn't mean truly lost a husband. Truly widows means true need, Right? Let the church care for those that others cannot. And let the biological families care for those who they can. Right? That we should love our families. Remember, just two chapters ago, as it was talking about elders and deacons, the leaders in the church, like the, the spiritual leaders and the lead serving and, and physical care people. Remember that, that was, the requirement was, let's look at how they manage their households, how they, how they navigate their marriage and parenting their kids. Let's look at that before we put them in charge of this family. Let's see how they do in their biological family because that shows us how they will lead the family of God. Again, it pushes them back. Like, let those widows that are young, let them pursue that. Let them go on to maturity in that way. Verse 17, now he shifts gears. Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, you know I gotta pause there. Okay, I was just kidding. All right, so, because it's what I do. I'm trying to be funny. All right, I'm not funny. I get it. 
Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Here's what happens. Paul moves to a second group they have a struggle with in Ephesus. Now, if you back all the way up to chapter 1, we covered it again a little bit last week. There have been false teachers that have come in and have misled people. Like it was just talking about misleading some of the widows, some of the women, right? They were misled by false teaching. And so people have come in and tried to destroy the church. That's where the letter from Paul to Timothy begins, talking about a need for sound doctrine, a a need to defend sound biblical thinking and behavior. He says, so let the elders who do that, let the elders who, who lead be worthy of double honor, especially, he says, those who labor in preaching, right? You may think that this is all I do. I actually do other stuff, by the way. But this, it doesn't make this easy, right? And it's not, the, it's not the studying. It's not the speaking. That part for me, easy. It's the fact that I have to figure out if I'm living this before I say it to you. You got to start early in the week if it's me. I'm just saying, right? You got to work through some things. He says, hey, that part's not easy. We're the ones who have to typically confront the person first. Hey, this is going wrong, right? He says, honor that. So some of the false teachers were starting to slander and undermine some of the elders and, and pastors and elders that were there, right? We use pastor and elder almost synonymously here, just so you know. Because pastoring is a gift like shepherding. Elder is the office that we live in, right? But I'm an elder first. And then pastor, typically, we, we just kind of like, the staff elders are called pastors, typically. It's kind of like how we do it, right? But elders, when I say elder, I say we, right? And that's what he's talking about. Hey, those that lead the church, honor that, respect that. That job's not easy, Right? By the way, and so it says, you know, like even this, when he's writing through Timothy to the church, he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, the labor deserves its wages, right? There's finances involved in every church. None of us like that. It's just true, right? Like this thing runs only on your giving and my giving, right? And so because of that, another area that we have not done stellar is just being clearer with the budget for you. Like, hey, here's what we're planning on next year, Right? We've given that to you in, Jan- in December every year, but we haven't really had that meeting time. We gather together. Well, you have a place to ask questions, and you should. We talk about it throughout the year a little bit. But again, these are some things as we read about the responsibility of members that we're also, again, we've got to live this first, right? I've got to live this first in order to stand up here. And so, of course, I see all the gaps. And so this year, you guys are going to be getting a budget ahead of schedule, and we're going to have a, a meeting around that where you get to have a voice. Because the expectation is you're going to fund that budget, right? And so you need to know where it goes and and how it is spent. And that's right. If we're going to ask you to give to this, then you should see where it goes, right? So we see that. So we're looking at the places where we're lacking. I'm asking the same of you. If you're not giving, we're giving you an opportunity to see where it goes and participate in giving, right? That's your job as a part of the family. My job is to make sure that we're clearer about that. Right? And then we put that for it's not just my job, the elders, us, right? We need to do that. So we will. Budget coming soon. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, they may re- so that the rest may stand in fear. 
What happens when an elder or a pastor goes astray? What do you do? Same thing. Doesn't change because they get a fancy title. Right? Go to them. Have a conversation. That doesn't work. Get another leader or two. Go to them. That doesn't work. It comes to the church. Right? It comes through the elders to the church. That no one is above the standards of behavior for the household of God. No one. Not me. Not our elders. Not anybody. Not staff. That we have the same responsibilities of behavior. The expectation on elders and deacons, with the exception of the calling to teach, which is different, but the expectation of all of us as staff, elders and deacons, is just a maturity of faith. The same expectation we put on you, that you would mature in your faith, right? The only difference is that we've shown a level of maturity, or our leaders have shown a level of maturity, and we give them a job or a role, a leadership position in that. Could be volunteer, could be paid, whatever it could be, right? It's just maturity. In other words, the calling of all of us. If you go back, I think, three messages ago, we talk a lot about that. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Church membership and church discipline should never be a popularity thing. It should never be decided upon who gives what. It should never be decided upon, hey, well, I really like, you know, Jeff and his preaching. Like, that doesn't count. It's, you don't get to be partial in the house of God. You don't get to judge people on race or level of income. They have tattoos or don't have tattoos. You don't get to do that, right? When we come here, we're equal. I might have a job in doing this, but we come together as the body of Christ. We are equally the body, and Christ is our head. God is our head. There is no partiality in that. There cannot be partiality in that. So a note for the screen. Church responsibilities. The church is a family through Christ with God as our Father. Discipline needs to be biblical, loving, and focused on restoring people through repentance. The goal, always restoration. If there's sin, it's repenting of sin, right? If you're unfamiliar with the term repenting, you only ever hear it in the church. Literally, in English, it means turn 180 degrees and run. Like run from that. That's how we should turn from sin. We should repent it. We should run from sin. The old Greek word that is actually translated to this actually has, a, has another meaning. It means change your mind, right? Remember we say we don't have behavior problems, we have belief problems? Change your beliefs. That's what the Greek word means. And then the English word means run from it. Change your mind about what's wrong, right? Find it in Scripture. Agree on something. Let the church weigh in. And then run from it. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Run from it. Don't slowly creep away, right? Run from sin. Verse 22. Do not be hasty, on the laying, do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I want you to hear three applications of this right now. I'm just going to say them. Do not be hasty on the laying out of hands, right? The including of somebody in something. Do not be, here's what I'm going to tell you. Do be, be slow. That's the opposite. So I want to tell you not to do. I want to tell you what to do. What, what should we do? We should be slow to call people believers. Right? Not just everybody's a believer. Showing up today does not make you a believer. Sitting in your garage does not make you a Harley. Right? Just being here doesn't... Right? Be slow to call people believers. Be slow to baptize them. Right? Make sure we're not giving some false assurance that, oh yeah, you're good, you're a believer, go live any way you want to. No. 
Because then we're giving false assurance to people. So just be slow. Be slow to do that. You don't include anybody else in something fast. Be slow, right? Be slow to make people members in a church, right? Be slow to call them family and give them the responsibility of disciplining one another. Be slow to do that, right? Make sure, hey, are these people striving towards the same goal as we are? And be slow to raise up leaders. It is hard to take a title back, right? It is hard to pull someone out of leadership. You do damage all the way around, right? So here's a note for you. The church equips, endures, excuse me. Jesus teaches a true church to remain pure and endure hardship and keep the gospel central so that the world can see Jesus in times of tribulation. Calls us to endure these hard things, the walking with one another, the being slow to include and making sure, hey, have we done our work? Have we done all our math right? Right? That we are to be slow, we are to endure, that we as a church, collectively, the local church, that we are to do that and keep the gospel central so that in hard times the world can see Jesus. You guys, if you come here, you know this already. That is my biggest critique of the last two and a half years of COVID. The church was a mess nationally. The church in America, horrible response. Far more political than spiritual. On both sides, and I'm swinging equally. We should be different. We start Revelation in two weeks. We're going to work through the book of Revelation, right? We start in two weeks. The call of Revelation is for the church to endure. You will see that over and over and over again. Don't believe me. Believe Revelation. The idea is that we will navigate hard things together as a family, keeping the gospel central, the word of God central, so that the world around us can see Jesus, again, in hard times. So verse 23, we're going to wrap up this section here pretty quick. Paul writes to Timothy, says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Clearly, he's writing to Timothy, right? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That's his whole be slow. And what you do in discipline. Sometimes stuff doesn't show up till later. 25, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden, right? Even those that are not cannot remain hidden. First two verses for Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Notice the outcome, that the name of God and the teaching, the gospel, cannot be reviled. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. They must also serve the better since those who benefit by, their good, benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It's talking about servants and masters in a culture that still has a hierarchy or a citizenship and a non-citizenship, or in some cases, masters and slaves. It doesn't use that. It's bond servant here. It's a little different. But even business owner and worker, right? Any of that. But notice it calls them brothers, like, hey, on the job, you may look like this. In your organization, you may be over or under. But as you walk through these doors, we're peers. We're brothers, right? He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. But you're brothers and sisters in here. So Paul goes on to their third category. It's not as relevant to us today. And it's the same idea of what we've been talking about. 
So I wanted to close with this. So there's these three categories. There's this call to discipline. There's this call to one, behavior, and then how to deal with things when they arise of someone not behaving the way we're called to behave. And this doesn't mean in every little thing, because we all fail, right? We're all going to fall short. Give me a few minutes, I'm going to fall short, right? But when someone persists in a thing that is bad for them and bad for those around them, that conversation needs to be had. If you love them, you will have that conversation. So what happens? Does this ever really happen in the church? Okay, so we talk about it. Do we ever really see it? The answer is yes. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, does this, and we'll put this on the screen. 1 Corinthians 5, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. Let's pause. You're to deliver the guy we've been talking about who has been repeatedly sinful and not heeding the warning of others or the elders or the church. They've already gone through all that. Here's what he says. Listen, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice the goal, that he may be saved. Deliver him over to Satan. Words I would never use out loud, probably. Here's what he's saying, all the way back to Jesus. When Jesus commissions the church, and he's talking to Peter, and he's saying, upon confession of faith, this is the church, a true confession of faith, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? Satan cannot prevail over the church. Those who are truly the church, who have made a true confession of faith. Paul is saying this man who won't listen to you needs to be removed from the church so that he can be at risk out there for his restoration in here. He says, kick him out. Listen, 2 Corinthians 6, one letter later. There's like four letters that were written that we can figure out. Two of them are in Scripture. There's others that kind of fill in some blanks, but here's what we know. They booted some dude here. That's what we know, okay? That's the spiritual version of saying it. Sure, okay. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 through 8. For such a one, the punishment by the majority, meaning the body, right? The punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. Same dude. One letter later, comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Listen to this. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The punishment by the majority is enough. If a majority of the church agrees, you do what you do. But the punishment of removal from the church was enough. Now you need to welcome him back in, he says. Did people remove people from church membership? Absolutely. Paul did it with the Corinthians. Paul tells Timothy to do it. Jesus started the conversation. So disbelieve Paul all you want. Jesus said so, right? If he will not listen to the church, then treat him like a Gentile and an unbeliever. Move him out. I want you to hear this though, 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The goal here is always restoration. If I have a problem with my brother, I go to him. If he has a problem with me, he goes to me. If that doesn't work, we include some leadership. But we'll speak truth clearly, lovingly, but true to us. And if that doesn't work, then you bring that to the church. And we're committed to doing that and figuring that out. I've never done it. 
had that kind of conversation. But it's been necessary. My, my hindrance has been, hey, how do we do this without just talking trash? But I don't get to use that as an excuse when Scripture is clear. You'll find a couple things out about me if you don't know me. I will absolutely call you out on something, and I will absolutely live it myself. And we will navigate it together. And we will figure it out as a family. I'll close with this. Church membership. As Generations adds a formal membership, it is your role in the church to become, it is your role in the church that becomes clear. Leaders can lead, but the church body must be included. You're a part of the plan, per Jesus, clearly per Paul, and I'm telling you, you're part of the plan. If we can lead, we can only lead as well as we will go together. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you paved the way, that you came and lived and died and rose again. We thank you that you gave your life for us, we thank you you did it to give us new life, not just not hold our junk from on us, but to transform us. We thank you that we have two brothers today who have made that proclamation of faith and that they are going to be baptized today. We love that, Lord. We celebrate that as a family. We don't do baptism somewhere else. We do it here, the gathered church. Like we do communion, we do this as a part of the body being together. We have a privilege today of wrapping arms around two men who are professing faith. And we get to call them to living like part of our family. And we get to be called to living as family to them. When I look at the church sitting here, I see people who look like each other sitting together. And then maybe another group kind of sits in a different place. And my prayer, God, today as we baptize, I pray this, that in every one of our hearts, that we would start to desire to know and love the people who don't look like us. The people who are sitting across the room from us. The people who live a little differently but profess the same Jesus that we profess. That, may, that indeed is enough in common to make us family. May we live like family moving forward. We hear your word. It is not unclear. You have a clear calling for us. Help us to honor that and respond to it and live as a family under you, loving one another as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. Let us treat one another like that. Because it's not just because you say so, but it is for our good. And ultimately, it is for your glory that others may see you and know you. And Jesus, you did this. You've lived this. And you call us to it. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.